two, one, two, three. The ghosts are calling out of work today. They've got way better things to do than work some nine to five. They got no use for living, breathing currency. But we all do because we're still alive. Welcome to The Good, The Rat, and The Spooky, where we talk about everything freaky, geeky, and occasionally the tweaky. Yeah, occasionally. Just occasionally. Like, yeah, like drugs. There's drug guys. We got drug guys. I'm Connor. I'm Vale. I'm also drug. Duh. Yep. Drugged. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> and today we are going to, uh, we're going to further what we've been kind of exploring the whole month. Do we want to go ahead and give that a little bit of a uh, good rad synopsis, even though it is I just mean, a topic? There's not you know, much of a... I'd like to see a you form do it. to it. I'd like to see you try. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Ha. Big studio heads recycle, reuse, and reduce. Talking about eco criticism? Uh, yes, and narrative tropes. And narrative, <laughs> yeah, narrative tropes. Yay! There it is. Yay! <laughs> I'm just gonna say, it, like, my good rad synopsis for my trope is a purity mm. question mark. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that'll be... Here's the th- here's the fun thing. So, family, we're going to talk about tropes today, uh, and it's not going to mm. be an all-inclusive one. Connor's chosen one. I've chosen one. Um, I think it's going to be really hard to be able to be like, hey, this is the thesis statement of... I mean, like, right. I don't know what you're talking about, Connor. I just know that for the past several hours, I have been feverishly researching and just getting steamed <laughs> over everything that we could possibly talk about so on that note i'm very excited i'm very excited connor um very cool yeah i don't know i just think i think it was really good idea that we talk about tropes because when we started when we were like brainstorming for this podcast Mm. we were like okay we'll obviously talk about stuff we'll talk about pieces of media but then like i think it might be good to talk about tropes and i like educating people at least on the basis so that I'm not alone in my knowledge. I like it when people yeah. <laughs> are aware of the things that I, I have going through my head at any given point in time. But I also think that tropes allow us to understand a piece a lot better. Mm-hmm. I think when we uh, no, when I... we can see repetitive patterns, um, it's data. It's data yeah. input that we can sift through and, and find meaning in. Right, and it's easy at a surface level to point towards uh, plagiarism, but uh, Hmm. what it is is, you know, deeper than that is it can be referential, it can be symbolic, it can be uh, retelling the same lesson intentionally. Um, So I'm, yeah, I'm very, very excited to dive on into that. Uh, I I, I would say my uh, personal good rad synopsis for my trope is um guys <laughs> that's it <laughs> guys yeah it's guys 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 <laughs> <laughs> and the uh i'll just come out and say it my uh my f- personal favorite trope and this is actually not a character it is it is more a uh a set piece or a place it's isolation and separation <gasps> um, which i i've drawn up a little umbrella here and above that we have loneliness fear depravity below that we have the kind of general recycles we'll see that uses isolation and separation a place of vulnerability uh a literal or thematic state of being we've got uh, it, it can very often serve as a final confrontation Mm. Um, a place of truth, which kind of coexists coexists with uh, that vulnerability. Uh, examples of this specific set piece or state of being would be the bathroom in Psycho, um, mm-hmm. the the very very top of the lighthouse. In the lighthouse, um, there is uh, the home base in the thing, um, or uh, even just the the point of power that uh laurie 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 stern gosh i've already forgotten strode laurie strode Strode. (laughs) laurie strode had in serving as the babysitter to these children she was kind of the only person of uh, of power even though she didn't have much she just had 
responsibility. Uh, so it, it kind of encapsulates all of these things, um, and you see it in a lot of different ways in horror, but uh, it usually serves as a blanket statement to uh, a reveal about the character, the place, um, the narrative, um, and it is nine times out of ten a very threatening place of being. Uh, so I'm yeah, so that's... ready. I'm yeah. so excited. I'm so excited. I I teach for a living. Uh, that's that's my that's my ultimate career goal is to be teaching mm-hmm. and directing. So I am very. I always get very excited when someone I trust is now behind the helm of leading <laughs> a info dump slash discussion. And so Connor, I take me away. I'm so excited. I guess the best place to start would just be with the most often kind of place of uh, that you will see this, and that is in the denouement, or again, the final confrontation. And it can be very formative as to whether or not the protagonist or whoever is going through this isolation um, is a dynamic or a stagnant character. Uh, Mm. And you'll often see that in how they respond to there being a revelation or there being... um, Again, this this face to face with the ultimate evil that has kind of been purveying the movie. Again, we're talking about this in a sense of horror. It's it's very often literally personified in the antagonist being here. Um, so I, I I think some of my favorite examples we'll see of this is, and we we've talked about the lighthouse on here before. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to throw up a spoiler from there, but. After uh, Robert Pattinson's Tom has killed Defoe's Thomas, uh, <laughs> and he ascends up to the tower just by himself, he he's he's mostly bleeding all the way up there, and he's he's uh, really in this place of of depravity, um, and and you see his character kind of stripped away, and you see his real intention and the real desperation that he felt in in needing whatever lied in this place. Uh, which is in my mind the, the the literal location of this trope, um, and we see all we see is the answers he receives um, on yeah. his face. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm I'm being kind of intentionally vague here because I'm not trying to spoil too much about the film. If you also, seen it before. you should just go listen mm-hmm. to our podcast episode. Also, yeah, know. yeah, like, what are you doing? On, this is like episode hello. 17? Come on. <laughs> this is we episode a lot. Here. Please go yeah, back to when it was lot. just episode a little. Yeah, exactamundo. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, no, it, it, it just very often serves as the definitive... Uh, ending to uh, the answer that we as the audience have had or they as the character in the narrative have had Um, and it just kind of leaves us with about as much as like that's about as much as we're going to get are the answers we see in this place the the things we learn Um, so Let's take it a few steps back, and if we're not talking about a literal place, we can talk more so about a characteristic, um, or the reason why a threat will resonate with our protagonist. Uh, Something like the loss of a parent in a brutal way, or um, I'd say, you know, any, any childhood trauma being related to a monster, all of these things we've seen in the in the past, uh, in, and pretty heavily in, I'd say the 90s are a lot of these uh, character, I guess, flaws, and I'm putting air quotes here. Um, but this will serve as a separation socially, or at least uh, characteristically and narratively. We can kind of look even back at April Fool's uh, and say our lead there had her own little separation because of um, because of her upbringing, and yeah, it was a little dark, yeah. but it kind of served to to carry on the plot of the film. Um, so oddly enough, uh, with that example, it's not inherently a bad thing. Um, no, no, not at all. It's just, but is it inherently a terrifying thing? Is isolation <laughs> and, and horror? Very often, yes. <laughs> I was gonna say, Connor, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I am an extroverted introvert. 
So neat. Okay. Uh, yeah, a little well, bit of both. I'm an introvert to the end. Uh, and mm. so whenever this topic of isolation comes up, I'm always like, ha, you mean paradise? Uh, but the, just the more that you've been talking about, the more that I've been thinking of, like, it's an isolation, right, that we're able to uh, reveal quite a lot. Absolutely. It's kind of the metaphor of the cave yeah. that, that I kind yeah. of, or I guess the allegory of the cave that I kind of fall back to um, in, in, you know, the lessons that we learn in isolation and in separation. Are they are they positively formative or are they are they shackles? Yeah. 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 And as you've just been saying, like when it's a state of mind, especially is caused by trauma, I as introverted as I am, I definitely crave connection. I live off of that. I love being connected yeah. to people and tethered in some way, shape or form. And and I know that we hate him to death, but, um, you know, it reminds me a lot of that Billy Sydney conversation where he's like, man, something changed. Uh, a year ago and she was like oh what you mean like my mom's death like that kind of changed my yeah. how, how I treat you and Billy's like yeah that's the one um, and granted we hate him but at the same time there is something uh, really forlorn I think about going through surviving trauma and mm-hmm. being the only one to go through it and now not yeah. being able to be connected to anybody else Exactly. Yeah. No, Sydney was very much a character that came to mind when I thought of this as far as the characterization will go. Um, and there, there are several moments when she is in the, a literal place of, of isolation with the killer throughout the film. Uh, but ironically, because of the separation from, like, you know, that, that damage, that trauma, she kind of had what it took to survive through the end. Um, so again, yeah. there is that there is that uh, it is usually terrifying, but it also mm. is kind of in some ways positively formative, at least in in, in a sense of survivability. Um, yeah, yeah. W- yeah, with these characters. Uh, now, this one might be the most uh, nitpicky of the little kind of thing this encapsulates, but... Oh, but get uh, picky. Get picky anyways. Yeah, no, no, but I, I will say just... The place is chosen for a final confrontation. Uh, Halloween comes to mind, and we it's 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 in that closet, uh, is where we really oh. see the moment when uh, she is like, well, she could you know die here or she could fight back. She could get out, but she is as backed into a corner as backed into a corner she, uh, gets. Uh, and here was just like a a. Uh, fight or die response for her and she chose to fight um oh i like that oh this is very this is now turning into like luke skywalker in the cave right. facing off a quote-unquote darth vader turns out to be himself <laughs> that's kind of what, or yeah. ray ray also being sucked into that little uh i know what you're talking about uh, yeah know, the most recent that thing saying a hole getting sucked into a hole i guess Yes. <laughs> yeah, this, that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like an isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is a fair assessment to say of all things, but in isolation is that when we become or realize or define who, what we really are. In that closet, yeah. Lori decided to be a survivor. Exactly. Exactly. She wasn't going to be another victim of this monster. Uh, she was going to fight back. And she was going to keep going. Love so, it. Yeah. So I guess just kind of in closing, the trope that we see here is is more of a narrative beat or mm. a, uh, I guess, honestly, a bit of an, uh, a weapon we'll see often in, an, in an, uh, a narrative. Yeah. Um, and it, it usually is kind of a, a character's mic drop before either dying or surviving. Um, oh, loving that! And yeah, I don't know. So, so it is. It is more of an abstract trope, and again, it's it's an umbrella that encapsulates many different things. Uh, but I love it a lot, and it it is something I have kind of consistently driven back to my my favorite films and my favorite uh, short stories. I was so. gonna say this shows up in The Thing and The Shining and the light. Yeah. So all, okay, all three. <laughs> Okay, so then here's my question. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that you personally are so drawn to this concept of isolation? Well, 
I will say, after a year spent in quarantine, it really <laughs> does resonate loud and clear <laughs> at this point in my life. No, I know, right? Yeah, for <laughs> it's, real. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so accessible. It's so um, approachable at, for me as an audience member. And, and it could just be, like, it very liter- literally could just be a product of 2020. Um, <laughs> but I think... Isolating trauma. Yeah, exactly. No, but I think seeing it in these very uh, literal manifestations and these very, um, very deliberate beats in what we've been talking about, it just resonates so much stronger. Uh, So I'd say I I think it's I think it's that. Yeah. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. I'm fascinated by this um, by this concept of isolation. I'm fascinated by two things. One, that you refer to it even as a narrative beat, is that it doesn't... This trope feels like it's versatile in the ways that it can be used, either as a setting, either as a beat, as uh, as a moment. It can either control the entire uh, onset of the story, or it can only be just, you know, exist in in one moment. Right. Um, But... It, it makes me think, for instance, of how many authors have been like, oh, what do we do when we find ourselves alone? And and they write these, you know, thinky pieces or Lord mm-hmm. of the Flies, just Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and they, they suppose that when left to our own devices, we do terrible, monstrous things. Mm-hmm. I really like the idea of isolation acting as a self-discovery mirror, as isolation being, in a way, its own monster for us to go right. up against. Because I think isolation is one of those things where it's like if you are only left with yourself and no other sources, what do you discover? If you have nowhere to go but inside, Yeah, what happens? You're just kind of really, really forced to... To have that self-examination, yeah, um, that that visitation of truth. You can choose to lie to yourself, and that's usually where a character will either uh, die in a horror film or mm-hmm. become a villain. So, <laughs> I don't know. Die a hero or yeah, emerge yeah, right. a villain. Yeah, I love it. I I, I love it so much, and and I think um, we're gonna have to bring this back because I I again I'm I just keep thinking of Lord of the Flies and how immediately yeah um, no that is very very much where for me reading the the, the story was incredibly anxiety inducing and that is a yeah. lot of where that stems from. <laughs> oh okay, so Lord of the Flies scarred you as a kid too, huh? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't eat bacon for a really long time after. I couldn't eat Ooh. any pork products after reading that book. I was like, no, thank you, <laughs> yeah. no, thank you. But yeah, I we're gonna have to come back to this. We're gonna, and I think that's safe to say of perhaps both of the things that we're gonna be talking about today, just because of right. how wonderful and prominent of tropes these are. It's not fair <laughs> to to say this is our and I'll be all discussion. This is just yeah, no, and I I really just kind of wanted to open up, uh, open up the gate to this more abstract approach to the isolation separation umbrella, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure it'll come up again, like you mentioned, in future conversations and in, in future things we explore because it really is a very very useful tool in in horror. Um, very so much I'm, so. I, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it some more in the future. I love it. I love it. I love it because, like, with... It, it's Isolation seems to be one of the defining tropes that sets horror apart from comedy. Because so much of yeah. it is extremely similar. Isolation is, I think, something that you can't have in comedy, but you can absolutely have in horror. You cannot have isolation in a farce. It's it only it literally only works in a beat so that you can break it by having loud shattering clatter thereafter. <laughs> right, and then and right. that's what makes it funny. In horror, it's like you can have this moment of isolation for as long as you want. You can have an entire movie. I mean that uh, I'm thinking of hundred twenty seven hours. Which perhaps mm-hmm. isn't necessarily horror, but the premise is horrifying. Ooh, yeah, it's that's a stressful one. <laughs> it really is. I still haven't been able to bring myself to watch it. I desperately want to, but also I just know the entire time I'm just going to be sitting there going, it's gonna <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. A it's going to be terrible it's... for me. Yeah. Uh, gee whiz. 
Well, thanks, Connor. Yeah, yeah, no problem. That's my little presentation about isolation separation. I'm going to be uh, thinking wanna... about that tonight at work while I am upstairs oh. in the dark alone doing my spotlight yeah. thing where no one can yeah, see me. Yeah, you should. I think that's a good place for it. I think so. <laughs> I think being isolated is a good time to think about isolation. Do we want to take a quick break and then hop into <laughs> your side of things? Oh, let's do that. All right, folks. We're going to take five. See you soon. Bye. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair! Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Yay! So back, here's boyos. the thing. Uh, I deeply apologize for being a, a little less general. Unfortunately, this is just who I am. Is uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you gave me a podcast. I'm gonna, you know, um, all this power gonna that use I found, it, I'm gonna it. totally abuse it. So been thinking uh, about what we've been talking about this month incidentally is as we've broached uh, the topic of slashers and and whatnot the final girl consistently comes up uh, I feel like you can't talk about a slasher without talking about the final girl so I would like to dip my toe into the vast waters of final girldom and as a mega disclaimer this is not an end-all be-all lecture this no 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 this is just me going mm. off and quite frankly isn't that more exciting so if you want an end-all be-all lecture i think so i think so i think so um if you want an end-all be-all lecture <laughs> where i tell you everything you ever wanted to know about this trope venmo me like five dollars my venmo is v dash macomb i accept almost any bribe anyways uh, so yeah, if you really, if you really want it, if you really want it, I will create your three hour lecture and I'll do it with a smile on my face. But for the purposes of this podcast, I feel like I'll distill it down into a couple <laughs> sections. One, I'm going to talk briefly about the history of it because it's not a trope that I defined. It's a trope that was defined in the early nineties. Um, and I'm going to present a couple of questions. The first one is going to be whether or not this trope is misogynistic or feminist. And uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit then about like gender dynamics and uh, what behavior is being rewarded and why. So, you know, mm. anyone who's ever been privy to me going on a feminist rant, uh, grab your popcorn. You know, this is going to get decent. <laughs> it's going to get decent. <laughs> so um, what is it? What is it exactly? Who said it? <laughs> the final girl is exactly what it sounds like. It's the final female in the cast who either defeats the killer or just escapes alive. Um, she's left alive at the end of the movie due to an implied moral superiority. Which I got, you know, I, my voice goes up at the end there because it's Ooh. like, I'm going to say these things. And I hope everyone can kind of feel this underlying, mm, Vale's got questions, Vale's got arguments. <laughs> I hope we all have right. arguments. So in quotations, implied <laughs> moral superiority. This usually means that they abstain from recreational substances and sex and also tend to be concerned with school and other responsibilities like babysitting. Like babysitting. So um, Carol J. Clover yeah, yeah. was the mad lad, mad woman, who in her 1992 book, Men, Women's, and Chainsaws, <laughs> she coined the term, the trope starts around the 70s. The 70s and 80s is known as the golden age of slasher, I suppose. And that's when you really see this mm. final girl that it is. come to fruition. Um, a quote from... Mad lad Carol J. Clover. She is, she being the final girl, 
She is the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and her own peril, who is cornered, wounded, whom we see scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. She is abject terror personified. That abject terror personified is, is an interesting point that I, I think I'd like to come back to when talking about gender dynamics. So hold on to these things. Hold on to the hold on to them in your noodle. Great. Um, not only is she the personification of abject terror, but I'm going to quote a website called nofilmschool.com and their post about the final girl. Uh, she's also the personification of conservative ideals of womanhood. She's untouched by the menace of the outside world. She's she's virtue and not just the absence of evil, but the personification mm. of virtue. Hence some question marks. Hence some question marks. We're gonna get yeah. we're gonna get back to our conversation about virtue in a second. Uh, so first, right, the first final girl that people usually point to is Mary Collingwood from Last House on the Left. Um, sometimes Jess Bradford from Black Christmas. They both came around in the early seventies. I think it was seventy two, then seventy four. Mm. Followed after is Sally um, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and uh, and then Laurie Strode. And Ellen Ripley. So those are those are the seventies girls. Um, however, there is a distinction between being a female survival at the end of a film and the final girl, capital T F and G. Um, Lila Crane, for instance, is an example of a female survival, but not necessarily final girl because she's saved by a male. She's downstairs in this basement, cornered by Norman. And whereas a final girl would, you know, somehow weasel her way past Norman and escape back up the stairs and have a whole 10 hour chase scene. Um, Sam Loomis comes in mm -hmm. and <laughs> knocks Norman down and, and is saved. And Lila doesn't have to actually confront Norman beyond just screaming and being terrified of this. Um, so final girls are really only saved by their own devices or a deus ex machina, which can be male, but there's a there's a massive difference between Sam Loomis coming in and tackling Norman versus what happens to Sally at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is a pickup truck driver just kind of is driving by and she runs out on the road and is like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> and he picks her up and, and they mm -hmm. take her away to safety. So um, depending on their level of purity, on these final girls' level of purity, there will be levels of survival. So Alice Hardy survives uh, Friday the 13th, part one, but then she's killed in the beginning of part two. Um, you have Chris, uh, who lives throughout part three of Friday the 13th, but she's essentially catatonic at the end. So it's like, how well do you actually make it out of this movie? Maybe your organs are still functioning inside of your body. But your brain ain't. Your brain ain't there. So there's there's varying levels all in uh, varying punishments. So any questions so far? Mm. Uh, no. He then spent the next 40 seconds marveling at the fact that Sam Loomis from Halloween was named after Sam Loomis from Psycho. I am here because this revelation has already been made to Connor on this show. He's just a fool who forgets when he learns things. Bye bye. <laughs> okay good all right sorry i can't hear anybody else's questions out there i just you're gonna have to tweet me okay so here's here's my big mm, kerfuffle with this trope is mm -hmm. is it misogynistic or not because you have so horror is you know this genre where we just kill people willy-nilly just scary things happen because we want them to happen and frequently we use women as sort of heartbreak fodder because they're tender and sensitive and it's nice. And, you know, you have a character like Christine Daae who is taken by the Phantom. And so the whole book is just the men falling over themselves to, to get her back. Or you have um, King Kong where, again, the woman is being taken and it's and it's this symbol of aggression against purity dare i say dare i say purity i wish everyone could see the faces that i'm making as i'm <laughs> uh, as these words have to slide off my tongue yeah it really makes the whole right uh, thing oh well rounded oh well uh and take me out for lunch and then maybe you can see my face so because <laughs> we have a female in a position of power and success over a usually male violent aggressor it can be easy to be like aha girl power it saves the day but when you start thinking about like, like what makes this final girl trope the final girl trope is, 
it turns it less in my mind from aha girl power and more unicorning you know what i mean like it's a, it's a special right. unicorn kind of the uh, the idea that uh, only virgins can ride unicorns and apparently also keep built killers at bay that exclusion <laughs> is based on an admittedly patriarchally obsessed aspect to a woman's personhood it's weird yep it's weird so that's, um, that's strange. It's strange. It's strange. It, it definitely gives one pause, especially when you consider that this trope was born into a male-dominated film industry during a time when women's liberation was on the rise, and men were not a huh. fan because this this brand of women's liberation specifically pushed for bodily autonomy and expressive female sexuality. So, but even hmm. before the seventies, sexually promiscuous women, or amoral, if you will, uh, in general, were punished. Via sensational deaths, you have Marion Crane who stole money, is having extramarital affairs, and she is punished. Mm. That's that's a that's a common thing with uh, with Hitchcock's women. I think is that they are blonde, pretty, and therefore punishable for any sort of moral huh. deviation. If they don't perfectly line up, then they're fodder. Right. You know, so you see that uh, a little bit with Tippi Hendren. You see that with um, Madeline from Vertigo as well. So, you know, that we'll, we'll leave that for a Hitchcock psychoanalysis later. But, um, but yeah, we, we're not necessarily unaccustomed to seeing behavior that we don't like punished. And it's got this very insidious undertone to it that says, if you don't behave a certain way, we're going to kill you. Mm. not a fan not a fan of that um, yeah no that's uh that's a lot that's in, pretty black mirror it's black but, mirror it's uh it's yeah. not great when you i mean it's a very dangerous question to be asking who do you who do we want to keep alive essentially is what we're asking here and when you answer that you're gonna learn a lot you're gonna learn mm. a lot because essentially what you get when you watch these movies is we want the bookish prude who has a semblance of responsibility and the tenacity or athleticism to survive and scream. Right. And you got to ask questions then about why that's so valuable. Like it's not, not, not that it's not, of course it's valuable, but sure. <laughs> what in your society necessitates that behavior? Mm. You know? So, but the, I, I mean, here's the fun thing though, is that like this trope was started in the seventies and eighties. It was coined in the nineties by mad lad, Carol J. Clover. And now that we're, you know, hopefully out of the dark ages of horror, question mark, um, nobody bends a trope quite like horror does. So as we've progressed further, the final girl is less patriarchy approved Vestal Virgin and more Buildings Roman. You know, right. it, it, it starts to become I think I think people horror filmmakers have realized it the weight that a final girl can have. And so you have Danny mm -hmm. from Midsummer, you have Thomason in The Vitch, Ooh. you have Emily Blunt in The Daughter in the Quiet Place. So it's it's almost like um with with the realizing that trying to enforce outdated views of proper womanhood, we've also filmmakers I think have also realized what you can say by keeping someone alive mm. you know either we redefine what it means to be pure and virtuous or we highlight why a specific killer would keep someone alive and both of those are far more effectual in this modern age i think than otherwise i agree i agree there there is a hyper fixation looking towards the past there is a hyper fixation on the sense of purity to the final girl and we talked about it a bit as ha how else do you define purity other than virginal? Because that's unimaginative. <laughs> I'm tired of it. I'm very, very tired uh, of it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's I, pretty, it's pretty um, <laughs> narrow there for a bit. I think so. I think it's unimaginative. And, and, I mean, I don't think that this current episode of Final Girl Talk is the appropriate place to then dive into a sex and horror talk. I think we should save that mm -hmm. for later. I'll, I'll focus on the Final Girl. Sure. But um, this sense of purity as being reflected in sexuality will mm -hmm. never not make me stumble and trip and seethe. See. Yeah, it's 
it is uh, incredibly dated. It's so dated. It's so dated. Which is why you know I love I love so much that um, you know one of one of the more interesting bends to this trope I think that I've seen is at the end of It Follows that even though the premise of It Follows mm. is essentially an STD, the final girl right. quote unquote electrocutes the it in question in a pool of water. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's that kind of symbolism of purification there. And mm-hmm. and then the vich. I, I'm just going to keep calling it the vich. Because <laughs> uh, that's how it's spelled. It's a double V. Uh, right, right. Vich, right. So, yeah, I, I think that's also a very interesting one that Thomason might have been the only one left. But then she's enticed to go to hell anyway. Yeah, and then so, she's, she's all, ha, 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 woo, I'm floating now. Ha, ha, now. <laughs> So, so yeah, so this concept of uh, purity being the thing that keeps you alive at the end of a horror is interesting. Mm-hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Um, but the other, I think, fascinating thing is gender. Uh-oh, we can't get five Uh-oh. seconds into anything without Vale talking about gender. <laughs> gender dynamics. So, if... If the what makes the final girl the final girl, like the the epitome, is purity, why can't it be a man then? Like, like, is it really about the final survivor being a woman, or is it about the f- final survivor being pure? Does it have to be a pure woman? Why mm. is it a woman? Clover says that viewers would reject a film that showed abject terror from a male. So I guess toxic masculinity is not feeling fear at being stabbed now. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a male. I can't comment on that. Um, <laughs> but she also says that that terror that we see the final girl goes through acts as a purgation of undesirable characteristics such as the, and I'm quoting here, relentless pursuit of personal pleasure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess the women aren't supposed to go off in search of pleasure, but men can. Yeah. So I don't know. That's uh, that's again another interesting gender dynamic is when <laughs> men go through abject terror, when they go through terrifying situations, what are they cleansed of? Mm. Versus what are women supposed to be cleansed of? Because uh, there's also that point um, that is also made that should a final girl take up a knife in defense, she's masculinized, masculinized, masculinized <laughs> through phallic appropriation. Don't worry. I've written. I've already written a paper on women using weapons. Duh. You know. Okay. I mean, duh. <laughs> but it was guns, not knives, and it was in theatrical mm. performances. And of course, if you want to read it, I am more than happy to send anything I've ever written to anybody who's curious about it. Again, Venmo me. <laughs> Venmo me a compliment. Like I don't think people realize like the way I think to get to an academic's heart is just by like leaning in close and being like, "Can I read what you've written?" <laughs> I swear. What are you I thinking swear. about? What are you thinking about? Like that's all I want. Anyways, so uh, th- this brings me this brings me to two questions that I have about a final girl being willing to fight back yet being I. I I don't know if it's a judgment call necessarily or being demonstratized, vilified mm. for being masculine, but are there any female weapons or is every weapon just a penis? <laughs> Help. Hmm. Is there anything? Is there anything? So I'd love to get other people's thoughts on that. It's like, is there is there a weapon that we can say, hey, that's feminine? Hmm. This is actually a great question. Um, I would say maybe a wit. <laughs> Why would you say that? I don't know. Uh, cause it's it's quick, quick. I don't know. Okay. Sharp as a whip. Okay. All right. I was thinking like it's a more Cat it's a woman? more intellectual weapon that we don't see. <laughs> I don't know. It's an intellectual whip. Oh, is that why Indiana Jones yeah. uses a whip? Yeah, cause he's a smart man. He's a smart <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. No. Hang on. I'm trying to think if there is any. Well. I don't know. This is kind of this is kind of dainty, but could a be a weapon. Fork. Yeah, it's a nice little fork. All right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't actually think there are any <laughs> uh, feminine weapons that come to mind. I'm gonna be thinking about this for a while. I'm gonna be thinking about yeah. it because I think I, you know the only thing that I'm coming up with is my fists. 
these is, <laughs> these is lady hands, but they'll do some Them's damage. Fists. Them fists, because they come from me. But I, I mean, I don't have an answer to that. I just am sort of now mm. gonna hyperfix it. Yeah, I don't either at the moment. I must create a feminine weapon uh, that is not just a slightly slimmer barata uh, of, a, of yeah. a gun or a stiletto knife. It's, no, no, no. I'm gonna think of something. Don't worry. Um, and then Therefore. the other question is like, is it just straight up masculine to fight back? Why is it masculine to fight back? Is it because women are not supposed to fight back? These are all slightly rhetorical questions. Right, right, right. No, I, I, I see, yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Um, more things Clover has said that I really liked is slasher films present Please. us in startling direct terms with a world in which a male and female are at desperate odds, but in which at the same time, masculinity and femininity are more states of mind than body. So mad lad Clover right there said, gender is performance, gender is performance. Which brings me to my next question, which is something that I talked about in my master's thesis, is what does it mean when it's an actual female body in the space? Because the the final girl is this really weird... I almost want to call her a liminal space. Because there's something... There's, there's a need to feminize, androgenize, and masculinize her. Hmm. She has to inhabit all the spaces. Uh, like she has to be a final girl but yet if we're not going to capitalize on femininity if we're not going to allow her to define her own femininity how female is she hmm you know what's what's the point in making her female if she's just going to present as androgynous or masculine Right. In either fighting back or in her very name and the way that she dresses. Is a woman the only vessel in which you can see purity? Because I think that's rude. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of rude. I think that's not fair. I think that's not fair to both uh, men who have been maligned by their own gender, the the <laughs> previous actions of the other members of their gender, and uh, yeah, and whoops. our precious precious NBs out there as well. So yeah. I yeah I I have questions about that. So um, on that note, is femininity then being rewarded or punished? Like, if we want to tell women to fit into the specific box of femininity, then why do they? Why do we grant them the masculine act of stabbing the killer? Is to be feminine to die, or do you have to fit into a specific realm of femininity to live? In order to make it out, right? In order to make it out. So, um, and the other thing, too, is, again, the way that we just... I, I think this might be my final thought my final thought my final girl hmm. is as i as i said kind of in the beginning when we think about describing the final girl as perhaps she's bookish she abstains from recreational substances and um and of course from sex here's the thing i don't think if we if we are looking for something to reward I don't think we are looking for well-educated, critically thinking, asexual mom friends to be the backbone of the society. Which, as one of them, yes, we are the backbone. And yes, you should want us as the emotional, ultimate support system. But that's... I don't think that's actually the behavior that's being rewarded. Mm. No, 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 no. Because when you take a look at um, the final girl habits, again, bookish asexual uh, fight to survive. We'll just condense it down to those three, right? Sure. Final girls are concerned with doing well in school, but I think in regurgitating the information that's told to them. Education and intelligence and critical thinking, it's not the same as doing well in school. I taught lower level college classes at a very good school, so I know that firsthand. <laughs> you might be book smart enough to get into a good school. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily what it means to be intelligent. Right. To be smart. I've graded those papers and I've thought to myself, how did you get in? <laughs> that's rude. <laughs> and that's rude, but I have graded quite a few papers in my time. Um, the duty to study seems more like a willingness to submit to the most prominent governing power in their lives. 
I think teens are less at the mercy of a government and more at the mercy of teachers and principals and schedules. And so what we really see through a student being willing to comply and organize their life around that governing body is that they're deemed promising, smart, and good Hmm. for compliance. Huh. So I, so there's that. I, I also, the other thing too, is that final girls aren't just disinterested in sex. They're squeamish around men. And I think to an extent, uh, other substances as well. They're just, they, right. they kind of like shy and like kind of move daintily away from it. There's just this underlying discomfort that's beyond, no, that's not for me. Like, I just keep thinking about Lori's reaction when her friend sets her up on a date in Halloween, where she's like, no, yeah. no, please tell me that you didn't. And she's just so mortified at just the prospect of being lined up for a date. Like, not even saying... I'm setting you up on this date. You're going to go have sex afterwards. It's literally just being one-on-one mm-hmm. -on -one with a man. And so I think there's there's part of me that wants to be like, is this a gay thing? <laughs> or is it literally just completely neglecting their own sexual identities? They just, like, do these final girls not even see themselves as a sexual being? And it's very, shall I say, like a child. Right. That innocence then is, is being described or being perceived as the kind of innocence exhibited through Eve pre-Apple hmm. of not even knowing, or at least knowing and being completely turned away from it. So then finally, I just don't think, th there's not this warrior-like fight to survive about them. It's just pure adrenaline and terror, as Mad Lad Clover said before. They don't run with grace and speed. They don't fight back with trained precision. It's a mad, stabby slash. They stumble, they trip, they fall, they're desperate. They're, in a sense, pathetic, mm. essentially, about this. So it's not, we're not here to see Laura Croft beat off a bunch of bad guys. It's it's more than that it's just we want to see a poor girl run to death right <laughs> and i don't against against uh, everything yeah right. it's kind of hunger gamesy and i don't know how i feel about that so again yeah. educated asexuals is not really what society is saying that we need uh, as an educated Existing on the A spec, I will say, mm -hmm. yes, it's exactly what you need. But <laughs> they're not the poster child for conservative ideals. It's subservient childishness is. Mm -hmm. If I am to believe anything from the 70s and the 80s slashers, is that the rewarded femininity is being compliant, easy to please, and perhaps even neglectful of their own sexual identity hmm. so there's so it kind of implies that there's safety in that compliance that there's safety in exactly. fitting that mold yeah exactly and and i think it's to mm. the point where it's like we will be watching a horror movie even now and we'll do the whole randy thing of like no don't have sex that's how you're gonna die we <laughs> we essentially victim blame these people yeah. in horror movies because that is the ingrained pattern in these movies. Again, I, I, I personally believe that like horror's true roots are in fairy tales and in being told these warning stories of don't do this or this is going to happen. We apparently we only want to preserve the children. The second you have any semblance of, Hey, I think this is what I like in bed, then you're going to get stabbed. <laughs> get out of here. Get out of the story. Can't have that. And and I think that's, mm. you know, that ties into with the 70s is uh, fear of women's liberation at that time of autonomy and mm. sexual expression. They're not allowed to dictate for themselves exactly what they want. Right. And when they start doing that, then it's almost like a beacon goes up for the killer and the killer is like, oh, that's what I'm going to kill. That's when people start dying. That's when people start dying. So thank goodness we've changed some of that. But have we? <laughs> have we? <laughs> There's always, there will always, there will always be that little. Yeah. 
It's it's kind of a permanent little uh, ingrain to the horror genre. To eh. I mean, a lot of different kinds of stories. Truly, 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 truly. Hmm. So yeah, so I that's uh, that's what I have to say about that. Is horror uh, tends to punish behavior that we don't want to see anymore, for better or for hmm. worse. Interesting. Um, do you do you know of any modern films? You've mentioned that in some ways and in some cases we've really strayed away from this. Do you have any that you really enjoy? And I, I said films. Any any anything. Any anything that we've talked about on the show huh. that you feel like has uh, had good representation there, or maybe a, a final girl that has really, in a healthy way, kind of. Um, held up their own you know not not yeah. the cookie cutter purity there shoot um maybe maybe <laughs> um i think always ellen ripley will be one of my favorites even if she was you know mm. one of the first final girls i She's that pretty, movie ages so well <laughs> classic because yeah. not only the behavior i feel like that's re- that is rewarding Ellen is actually critically thinking because there are other girls on that ship Mm -hmm. on the boat with her. And what is, what is being rewarded in that movie? I think feel free to disagree with me, but I think that it's, uh, it's being cautious and compassionate. Huh? There is, there is a, a human centric, human I don't want to call it human centric but I I think that there is a certain level of empathy towards Ellen Ripley and see, you know but the, and that's the funny thing too about Ripley is that how often do we call her Ellen we call her Ripley yeah right she's she's pretty masculinized and androgenized at least um <laughs> so yeah but I think I think Ripley Ellen Ellen Ripley she marks a progression of the final girl where it's not just purity based, but it is smarts based. It is thinking about things. She's on. She's pretty on top of it. She's pretty, she's pretty <laughs> awesome. And then I think Sydney Prescott as well from Scream. I absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely adore that she will. She got to the end, lived to kill several people, and <laughs> uh, hopefully had a good time. Yeah, Doing hopefully. It. <laughs> I um, <laughs> I actually rewatched Scream just this last weekend again for fun, and it's man, it it holds up. It, it tracks. Up. It tracks. It tracks. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm an idiot. My favorite final girl of all time is Edith from Crimson Peak, and there you go. Oh, That's excellent no, there subversion. It is excellent subversion because she does have sex. I mean, granted, she gets married, but she does have sex yeah. and she has a good time. Yeah. And and yeah, the people. Well, I guess maybe she's not the final. Oh, uh, I don't know if she counts as a final girl. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. I just wanted her to be. She's a good front man. Front, Listen, front woman. She's great. She's great in terms of female survival in a horror genre. She does pretty great. Whether or not Edith is a final girl, I think might be up for discussion because she's not the only one that survives. The Doctor also survives. Mm. Very true. Very true. But yeah. But she's a good character. She's, she's a great listen. She's a great character. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I also think there's something to be said for Danny in Midsummer. Mm. I, I yeah, think no. I cannot wait to talk about Midsummer because mm-hmm. that one's fascinating. That one's real fascinating. I think I think Midsummer is a great movie where they also do the thing where instead of rewarding purity, they just go ahead and redefine what it means to keep one person alive. Right. And I like that. And yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, we'll put a pin in that conversation for when we dive. Yeah. <laughs> in the proper deep end for that one because let we me, will. But let me just say, it's not a girl power movie. It is not a girl power <laughs> movie. That's a breakup movie. It's 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 not a it's it, oh it should be a breakup. It's a lot of well, <laughs> it's a lot of movies. <laughs> And it is movies. not a girl power movie. Uh, so yeah, yeah we'll, we'll no. come to that. We'll come to that when we get there. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I think those are my thoughts. Hmm. I think I've, again, not not comprehensive at all. Just me ranting about things. And- no, I, I I love it. And um, 
I am sure we will kind of revisit these themes. Uh, well, the the trope of the final girl, as well as uh, isolation and separation in future episodes. And I think it's cool to just um, you you mentioned the progression of uh, of the final girl. I I think it's interesting to see in what ways they get it right and in what ways it is. Um, I don't know more more approachable, more realistic. Yeah, right. Um. Because and yeah, I, I look forward to kind of revisiting that. Me too. Because, like, who doesn't... Again, the thing that upsets me so deeply about um, the final girl trope was the way that it was misused. I have no problems necessarily with a final girl. I don't think I necessarily have problems with purity being rewarded, especially if horror is about the dichotomy between good and evil. The sure. problem is, when do you... I should say, how do you define purity? And who are you to mm. define purity? I feel like it needs to go by a case-by-case basis where... And, and this is what I think Scream does very well, is that I would consider Sydney pure because she is without guile. Sydney is just straight yeah. up as she is. Um, but it's hard to define purity and virtue in this day and age, not because of necessarily rural, moral relativism, but just because... Those are such ambiguous terms. <laughs> <laughs> it really it's it's almost like what we really have going for us is well we know what it doesn't look like or we know what mm-hmm. we think that it shouldn't be question mark yeah. is this how you define purity and so i feel like a lot of people go to like oh well what are the moral ills of this universe and i just don't think that smoking a joint and having sex is inherently evil <laughs> right. That's my hot spicy take. Hot and spicy. Hot and spicy. Hot and spicy. Come right at you. I don't think it's wrong. Great. I I love it. I tend for a second that. Um so these these are just kind of a couple of our favorite tropes and like I've mentioned we're going to be revisiting these in the future and seeing what films and uh different pieces of that horror genre do these well and i'm really looking forward to uh to dishing them out later i am too i am too i'm glad that we set this uh set this up nicely i think for us to to draw back upon i think that's one of the fun things about doing a horror podcast especially when we have so much that we want to cover and so much that there is out there to cover is that we just essentially are building upon layers and layers so really this isn't necessarily like self-advertisement but seriously folks friends it might behoove you to get caught up on <laughs> and stay yeah. up to date in the things that we're talking about because we will be building off to of learn this. a thing we or two. We will be referring back to this. <laughs> I mean, even in this one episode, we've already gleaned from several things that we've already talked about. So right, right. Do the things. Stay, stay with us. I, stay and with us, friends. Stay with us. I think part of the fun is really starting to be able to recognize these tropes in in different places and in um, different ways. So it's going to be yeah. a fun time. Going to be a fun time. Yeah, because then we get to talk Would about like to breaking leave? them. And yeah, what absolutely. are rules if not meant to be broken? Speaking of being broken, Vale, would you like to leave any uh, pieces of advice for our our filmmakers in the audience, perhaps the the authors and auteurs who listen to our show? Yeah, I'd like I'd like us all to take a hot second and consider how exactly we define purity. If you are a creator, if this is something that has any appeal towards you, um, I, I would advise taking just a good solid look at yourself and considering what motifs, what attitudes, how do you compose the picture of purity? Hmm. Because it'll help you create better monsters, it'll help you create better characters, and it'll be able to help you see things better in this world i think that if you don't immediately write things off as being impure then you probably have a lot more empathy for a lot more people around you Mm. love that what about you Um, what about you connor i would like to to lay out the challenge to be able to answer the question of when your characters are alone and they see themselves in the mirror what do they see and what are they thinking? Um, I think having that kind of emotional depth, uh, whether it is a simple answer or not, will 
really bring a narrative uh, to new levels as well as um, just kind of expand on on what it means to to be alone. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not, I, I I don't know I'm not challenging. I'm not actually <laughs> challenging any filmmakers to do this. I think no no superfluous, challenge. But no no no. Be able challenge. to answer that question. It's true. So. It's true. Everyone, go home and look in the mirror. Look that thing deep in the eye and say, "Who are you? Who the who, heck are who you? Who are you? I really want to know." And I want you all to be able to say, "Yeah, I am staying spooky." When you look in the mirror. Oh heck yeah! Oh heck yeah! Because yeah. I'm gonna stay spooky. I'm gonna do it. Good. I'm glad. I think I'm gonna stay spooky too. Well, good. Good. Oh, I'll, I'll see you at next week's spooky convention then. See you at the spooky convention. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> the Good, the Rad, and the Spooky was created and written by us, Connor Wood and Vale McComb. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for updates, new episodes, recommendations, and inordinate amounts of pictures of our podcast mascot, Spooky the Cat, at Good Rad Spooky. Please support us by liking, subscribing, and even reviewing. Intro song and ads were written and performed by Connor. Special thanks to Ned Wilcock for the logo artwork.